0: All right. Good morning. My name, I see some friendly faces out here too. This is great. My name is Eric Adinger. For those of you who don't know me, um, I'm probably not so familiar to some of you here, uh, but I grew up in the church here at Stonington. So everything I really kind of know here, I learned or that I'm going to be preaching today. I learned the basics of way back being a kid. Some of you here might remember when this was the only building here and they didn't even have the addition on yet. And the kids would, instead of going out there, would go down the back out here. Some of you might not have known there's actually steps, and they're probably still hollowed out down there. But so things have changed since I've been, you know, since a kid, but uh what's not changed about this place is the truth. And that's why I love coming back here because I was actually just talking to Dave before I got here, or when I got here, and that there's really not a lot of truth speaking, uh truth preaching churches out there, and I'm proud to say that you guys are one of them. So keep up the great work, stick to the truth because we know the world's gonna keep lying, Satan's gonna keep working, so just stick to the gospel. That's what we're going to learn about today. Stick to the Word of God and what it says. So today we're going to be in Acts chapter 17, and we're going to really focus on evangelism. And our message, my message today is going to be about reaching the unreached. <clears throat> now, when I say reaching the unreached, I mean the ones that wouldn't ever come inside a church otherwise unless they were first evangelized and Jesus changed their hearts. A lot of times as believers, we want people to come, Right? come and hear the word, come and hear the word of God. But Jesus didn't really say in Matthew 28, have the people come to me, right? What did he tell us to do? He told us to go to them. And that's what we're going to focus on. And it's, and it's really interesting because Acts chapter 17, many of you are probably very familiar with this. And the thing I love about the Bible is you can read it over and over and over in many different ways, many different angles. I call, I call it like an onion. There's so many layers and you keep peeling it back and there's so many lessons buried in the word of God here that you can take. ...for certain times of your life and certain seasons... ...and and certain things God wants us to look at it for. But today, we're going to slowly look at Acts 17. Uh, We'll look at the history, because I love the history of it. But we're going to look at it from an evangelism standpoint. And why do we evangelize? What's the importance of evangelism? Well, I kind of mentioned it a little bit. Christ says in Matthew 28 that we need to go and make disciples of all the nations. Did you know that we are all missionaries in Jesus' eyes? I know a lot of us say, oh, we're going to send mighty missionaries. The missionaries are going to go and do our work. But we are actually missionaries of the gospel of jesus christ and we don't need you know back in the old testament it had to be a priest and the levitical priesthood and everything you have the holy spirit with you and you can preach just like pastor brad can or i could you guys can do the same thing and and the bible even says the holy spirit will give you the words uh, that you need to be the missionary to these people you know the bible even asks how how would the world know the gospel if they never heard it and how are they going to hear it if we don't tell them right And there's many lost souls in our mission field. It's interesting because we always think about, you know, if I'm going to be a missionary, we need to really help people in Africa or wherever. And and it's funny because I have missionary friends. Actually, one of them is in Tanzania. And he said, Eric, the funny thing is, is when I tell them about that I'm from America, they say, can I be a missionary to the United States? Because I've seen what is going on there. Did you know that the African people, when they get saved, want to come to preach in America? That's how bad... It looks to them, and, and all you have to do is look at the news, look at our culture, and it doesn't look very godly, so the, America might be more of a right mission field than Africa even is, so we might want to switch our mindset. So we don't have to leave America. There's a lot of missions to do around here. It's not going to take you long to find lost people in your neighborhood, right? So today, we're going to take a look at Paul and his approach on evangelism, and we're going to learn some lessons from him. He's going to help us, actually, become better evangelists to the people around us. We're going to find out that Paul knows his audiences... And, he's, and, he, and he keys in on based on what they know and who they are. Now, we're going to focus today mainly on Athens. However, I couldn't, because of the concept of evangelism, I couldn't not do the whole chapter. So we're going to read the whole chapter. We're going to read section at a time. We'll do Thessalonica, Berea, and then Athens. And we're going to blow through Thessalonica and Berea pretty fast. But there's some key things that we need to, to need to see here to get the full scope of evangelism. So let's just read. I'm going to read the first nine verses. You can follow along. Acts 17 verses 1 through 9, and we'll do a brief breakdown of what they say. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down, <clears throat> have come here also. And Jesus and Jason had received them, and they are all acting against the decree of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus." And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So just a couple brief points I want to make based on the scripture here. You see it says, Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned for them from the scriptures. He went into a synagogue, we see. And a synagogue is all Jewish people, right? So he already knows his audience. That was actually his custom. He preached to the Jews first, and we're going to see that here eventually get to the gentiles but he'd go into a synagogue where there's nothing but jewish believers or when it says devout greeks that kind of means gentiles or the greeks mainly around there who also accepted the god of israel so he's walking into a place that accepts the god of israel so they have some pretty common ground and he can actually save a lot of time because he doesn't have to go back through creation and the creator like god creator and everything like that so he he uses this common ground and we're going to see he does this now, what it says is he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now, if you don't stop to think about it, you might think, well, I could do that. Too. I could take them right to Romans and I could do the Romans road and then I could do the gospel of John. I could... But the interesting thing is, if you, you know history, these weren't written then. So when he's talking to them and he's teaching them about Jesus being the Messiah, he's only using Genesis to Malachi, only the Old Testament. Isn't that interesting? Can, how many of you, just think about it, how many of you could prove to a jewish person who's a jew today that they're in our community how many of you guys could use the old testament to prove that jesus was the messiah because that was paul's approach because he knew what they believed the old testament and we know that jesus fulfilled all those prophecies all you have to do is go back and find those prophecies some of my favorite ones i'll give you two right now off the top of your head is isaiah 53 that one's a powerhouse that's the story of christ and psalm 22 and there's many more those are just two but you can find many more and those are some he might have used but did you know paul didn't invent this concept of teaching the old testament to the jews to prove that jesus was the christ how many of you remember the road to emmaus right road to emmaus this is what jesus said uh, in luke uh, and he said this remember it says and he said to them O oh, foolish ones and slow of hearts to believe all that the prophets have spoken was it not necessary that the christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory and beginning with moses and all the prophets he interpreted them in all the scriptures of things concerning himself. So Jesus before Paul, Jesus was actually the first one to preach that he was the Messiah through the Old Testament. He did that right there on the road to Emmaus. Another thing we have to notice here in this little passage is that he was preaching, Paul was preaching, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, why would it be so important that he mentioned suffering? That, I think, was a key concept. Because the Jews, their concept of Messiah is this powerful king that was going to overthrow the Roman government and restore Israel to the people, which Jesus, by the way, will do at his second coming. But they were confused. They didn't understand there was a first coming and a second coming. They think there's just one. So what he was doing is as he was preaching them on their common ground, he was actually starting to point out all the things that were flawed in their logic to get them back on what the gospel actually said and meant. So you can see him here saying that, you know, he had to suffer and rise from the dead. Isaiah 53 you know, it's, it's one that, you know, some Jewish people don't even like to read because it's, but what I love to do is have people read Isaiah 53. Don't tell them it's Isaiah 53. Read it and say, which historical figure is this about? And the most always say, that's Jesus. That's a story of Jesus and say, well, that was written, you know, almost a thousand years, so like seven, 800 years before he was born. So it's a, it's a really good and powerful prophecy. And we see some were persuaded, the Jews and the Greeks, others were not. And then we see what else happens right there at the end. The Thessalonian Jews become angry and start a mob and there's persecution. So you're going to see this pattern here. Every time the gospel is preached, there's going to be some kind of aggressive persecution. Satan's going to rile up the spirits, the hearts of the people, and they they begin to want to search and attack Paul and Silas. And we know that comes with preaching the gospel. There's always going to be something standing against us because the world hates the truth, right? And Satan hates the truth. So we see some persecution there. They ended up searching for Paul and Silas, and then eventually, because they couldn't find him, out of their anger, they take Jason because he harbored them and the other brothers in Christ in Thessalonica. And what's really interesting, when Paul later writes First and 2 Thessalonians, that's to these people. This is the birth of that church here. So when he's writing the First, and 2 Thessalonians, he's referring back to those that believed in the synagogue. And uh, uh, it talks to them there. But there's one other thing I just want to mention before we go to the next part about Berea. Is did you see that they accused them of turning the world upside down? is that interesting? They accused Paul and Silas and all these people of turning the world upside down. And technically they did, but I say they are turning it right side up. Because we know the way of the world right now is upside down. And Jesus comes to restore it, right? Um, so it's really interesting that they were, they were told that they were turning the world upside down. How many of you, how many of your neighbors and people in the neighborhood that didn't like Jesus could say that you're trying to turn the world upside down? Because it sounds like, you know, some hateful, and they probably, they probably meant it to be an attack and hateful. But honestly, if there's a bunch of people, atheists or agnostics or people that hate Christ... And they say saying that you're turning the world upside down by t- preaching Jesus. That's a good thing. Take that as a badge of honor. Because that's what we want to do. Jesus said, you know, we're going to do things that the world doesn't like. The world's going to hate what we do. But, but they went and continued to turn the world upside down, or what I think is right side up. And then you eventually see, it's interesting, they do let them go. They, but they make Jason pay security or money. So they, it was about money and, you know, and they, they kind of let it go there. But what happened is Paul and Silas now... Had to move on because it got so aggressive they were searching for him. And Paul and Silas go to Berea. So let's just go to verses 10 through 15 now before we get into Athens. So verses 10 through 15, now they're going to go to Berea. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So we can now have this little clip. He was kind of running away to Berea. And he gets to Berea, and what does he do again? He arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. You can see this is a common practice. When he gets into a city, he says, where's the synagogue? I've got to find the synagogue, and now I've got to go preach to the Jews, the scriptures, the Old Testament. I'm going to get their scrolls out, and we're going to talk about why Jesus is the Messiah. This time, it's a little bit different. So before, we saw that some people believed, but the Thessalonians, or Thessalonica, yeah, they got mad and started that mob and got really angry, right? Well, here, and this is actually maybe one of my favorite... Uh, passages and scriptures in the new testament act 17 11, where it says now these jews were more noble than those in thessalonica why because they received the word with all eagerness but not only that examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so and i highly recommend you guys to write that down somewhere highlight that make sure that's in your thoughts because it is very good what they did is they were very open to hear the truth and they received it they actually were saved they became believers in Christ, but, but before they believed, they were so eager, they actually check, fact-checked them. And that's the only kind of fact-checking I like, is the one that checks the Bible first. I don't like that Facebook stuff that's full of whatever, uh, but they actually fact-checked them with the scripture. They looked at the scripture and they said, you know what, Isaiah 53, that adds up, this psalm adds up. I think Paul's right. But they didn't just take it and say, whatever he says, I believe, because honestly, again, I was talking about there's not a lot of great churches out there. There's a lot of teaching, a lot of stuff of the world. And if you aren't a Berean, Acts 17, 11, there's people right now this morning and Sunday somewhere that's going to listen to a lie about something that's not in the Bible that the preacher said, and they're just going to say, I heard that in church and that must be true. Instead of looking at the scriptures and saying, wait a minute, that doesn't, that's not what Jesus said, and kind of confronting it and, and trying to figure it out in their mind. So it's really good, and I think Pastor Brad would love me to say this too, it's really good even if you challenge me Or you challenge Pastor Brad. Maybe not challenge us, but everything we say, don't just take it for a grain of salt. I'd like you to do your own homework and fact check me with the Bible. Because that's the healthiest thing to do. And it's a good exercise to do. And I don't think you're going to find Pastor Brad being wrong on many things. That's the good news. But you're going to find other Christians and people that tell you things that aren't in the Bible. And it's really good to know your Bible. And how can you fact check unless you read your Bible, right? So I love here that the Bereans were fact checking with Scripture. And I highly encourage you to do that in the world today full of lies uh, and misconceptions about the Bible and about who Jesus is really is and then you can see the Thessalonians isn't this funny they're like 30 or 30 miles away or so they heard about all that Paul is doing so the word traveled he must be doing a lot of things and they got so mad they went and drove. could you imagine like getting so mad like somebody's so mad they drove from like Harrisburg to come chase you out of Sunbury Shemokin area like it takes a lot of effort right that's how that's how angry they were and they were getting all stirred up but I think it's something interesting I think something was happening on the spiritual level because by the way everything that happens down here. Happens in the spiritual realm is controlled, which is why our prayers are the most effective way to interact with the world, is because everything's happening up top. But I think what happened is their hearts got stirred so much by Satan and the evil spirits that they wanted this to be snuffed out and stopped. And remember, God's in control of everything. And I always say, like, kind of in football, sometimes you miss a block so a guy can come through so you get an open pass. It's kind of what God does sometimes. And God misses that block purposely. He let them come there. You know why? Because they chased them out of Berea. And now the Bereans were saved. But it actually made the gospel spread further and faster and got to more people. So what Satan thought he was doing by stopping the word, we're going to see it actually continued to spread it. So God lets them through. He lets those Thessalonians come and chase them out. And it looks bad on the surface sometimes. Sometimes the things you see on the surface look very bad, but they're actually very good for the gospel. If you actually look at the persecution over like in Afghanistan, uh, that that grew in the past couple years. If you see persecution going on in the Middle East, you actually see it looks terrible and it is terrible and keep praying for those people. But what it does is you'll see the church will never grow so fast as in persecution. So, when there's persecution, you'll see it'll actually, the church will actually grow faster. So, sometimes, you know, God will allow these things to happen. And I think that's what happened here. I think it's an example of what happened here. Now, we're going to get to go to Athens and we're going to kind of finish out the chapter. And this is what we're going to really focus on most of our time. But before we get into this, we've got to know a little bit about Athens. So, many of you know that Athens is in Greece. And when you think of Greece, You think of the philosophers and all that stuff and democracy and that is true that happened about centuries before three four hundred years before is when you know aristotle socrates plato all of them were around so it is the intellectual capital of the world very academic the concept of university is from greece so this is now the intellectual world and not as many jews now there's jewish synagogues but it's going to be very Greek, or very worldly, Gentile people that don't necessarily accept the God of Israel. So now he's walking into a bit of a different territory. The Greeks were also pantheistic, very pantheistic. That, you know, they had a pantheon of gods. They believed in multiple gods. And we know there's evil, multiple evil spirits, but there's only one true God. So they had it wrong there, but they believed in many gods, and they had a very different worldview from Christianity when it came to the afterlife. And even those that believed in God... They didn't even believe he was really involved in the world. So you're going to find out the Greeks here, and they were very intellectually prideful. They thought they were the smartest people in the world. And maybe academically at the time, they were the smartest people in the world. Who knows, as far as academics go. But with the truth, they were very far from it in many ways. And we're going to see that here. So let's first just read the first chunk of it, chapter, or verses 16 through 21 here. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens... May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Let's just break those scriptures down here quickly. Right out the gate, verse 16, it says, Paul's spirit was provoked, in my translation, provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. Now we believe you know Paul went and we know from the scripture before he wanted Silas and Timothy to come. He wanted them to come with him and they were still back at Berea, right? So I think Paul was going to kind of set up shop, get comfortable, you know, get acquainted, check into his hotel, so to speak, and you know, and wait for Paul and or wait for Silas and Timothy to get there. But his spirit was provoked. As he walked around and took a tour of the city, he saw all these idols and all the sinful idolatry throughout the world. And it he just, it just, it couldn't help it. His spirit was provoked. And by the way, our flesh doesn't provoke us to think that this is idolatry. Our flesh loves sin. So we know there's something within us when we're provoked. And when Paul's provoked, I believe he's provoked by the Holy Spirit here to think of what a sinful, s- sinful disgrace this all is with all this idolatry. And I think we get this feeling too. I'm sure you guys do sometimes. When you watch the news or you watch some, something on entertainment or you hear about what's going on or you walk into a place and they're doing a lot of sinful stuff, you start to feel kind of like dirty, like, ugh, there's a lot of idolatrous stuff going on, a lot of sin going on here, and you feel like you almost can't even be there. I think it's the same kind of thing that happened to Paul. The Spirit was provoked, and and the Holy Spirit was kind of moving him like, Paul, you can't stay still. Look at all the idolatry. You need to act now. And that's what happens, because I don't think he really, in his own flesh, meant to preach yet until he had his sidekicks with him, Uh, but he was provoked. So something in him changed, and he saw all these idols around. I'm sure if you went down, you know, ...downtown or somewhere around here... ...and you saw all these idols of different gods... ...you'd feel a little uneasy too... ...walking through there as a believer. So, it says... ...so, he reasoned in the synagogue... ...with the Jews and the devout persons... The ...devout persons, again, being the Gentiles... ...who believed in the God of Israel... ...so again, he begins same pattern in Athens... ...he's in Athens, he's in this very intellectual world... ...but he still says, let me find the synagogue... ...I want to go preach to the Jews... ...about the Old Testament scriptures... ...which he probably didn't call Old Testament right, at the time... Uh, ...but it was Genesis to Malachi and he preached to them there. But then there's the second part of that verse 17. It says, and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. So now he's going to a marketplace, which is a Gentile area. Now he's out. Now think of it like, this is like kind of like, you know, talking to somebody at a synagogue, we talk to the Jews, and now you go out onto market street or wherever your town is. And now you're standing there out in the open. <clears throat> now nobody has a concept of belief in God. You're not guaranteed that they're going to be godly people you're talking to anybody, and in a place like Athens, it's a very worldly place, so you're going to be talking to a lot of people who are pantheists, and who have a lot of different ideas, and you might not know, they might have all different kinds of ideas, which we're going to find here, but again, these are Gentiles, when he goes to the marketplace, these are Gentiles who would otherwise not enter a Jewish synagogue, right, they would never, he wouldn't be able to get them into a synagogue to talk about the scriptures, they were going to go in there. They were just about their own business. So I think about this, about the people who aren't in churches this Sunday, aren't in synagogues this Sunday. There's people, unchurched people, who don't care about Sundays. They think it's an extra day to sleep in, right? So we're not going to get them to come to church. Instead, we've got to go to them, like Jesus said in Matthew 28. And that's what Paul is doing. He's going out and saying, these people are never going to come to a synagogue. They're never going to come read the scriptures of the, of the God of Israel. So I'm going to have to go to them and talk with them in the marketplace. And that's what he does. Verse 18 says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with them, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching, look at this, Jesus and the resurrection. So even though he's talking to foreigners that have no concept of the God of Israel, maybe, or they, they don't accept him anyway, uh, he's still telling them about Jesus and the resurrection. He's out there in the marketplace telling them about Jesus who came to save the world and that he came back from the dead. And you'll see resurrection is a common thing that is and it's in every time he preaches the gospel, the resurrection's in there. And that's because it's very important. Did you know there's people out there that call themselves Christians but don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And if you read 1 Corinthians 15, that means that the, that the, the gospel they're talking about is hopeless. Because if Jesus didn't come back from the dead, we'll never come back from the dead, and there's no hope for us. First Corinthians 15. Paul wrote that. If you read that chapter, that's really what it's about. So he's emphasizing this strange idea to them that that Jesus was resurrected from the dead as proof that he was God and that he came to save the world. But you'll notice here he preaches Jesus' resurrection, but there's no Old Testament scriptures. He didn't go to the scriptures. He didn't read out of the Old Testament. He didn't read out of the Bible to them. He just started talking to them in their own terms, but talking about Jesus and and the resurrection. And it's interesting here, Paul encounters these Greek philosophers with very different world views. And by the way, these are intellectuals. So the reason I wanted to focus on Athens today is because we live in a world more like Athens than we do Thessalonica and Berea. We live in a modern-day Athens, and if you read the Bible enough, and you look around the world, the Bible actually, you know, nothing is new under the sun. It spirals in patterns over different times, but it's different names, different faces. There are still these Epicureans and Stoic philosophers today in our world, and you know some of them. They just don't call themselves Epicureans or Stoics. But they think they're very intellectual, and they have a high concept, Of intellect and all these things so he's going to talk to a new crowd that thinks they're you know they're very smart and they have their own concepts and ideas so the epicureans the first group the reason he says epicureans and stokes because they even disagreed so even in the intellectual world they disagreed and they'd have debates at the areopagus and things like that but the epicureans were what I call scientific materialists I have some friends like this basically that there's atoms and void there's 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 space there's nothingness and we're here we die, there's nothing, you know, there's no gods intervening. They didn't always deny the existence of the gods, by the way, because they lived in Athens and people believed in the gods, but they did not believe that the gods interacted with humanity or even the universe. Some of them thought the gods were also created because they believed that the universe was eternal. And by the way, did you know that like the beginning of the concept, of the beginning of the universe wasn't even accepted by the scientific community until a hundred years ago? So before that, they would actually mock Christians for saying there was a beginning, which is really interesting. And now they hijacked it and called it the Big Bang and said they're right again, which is hilarious to me because we've been saying it the whole time. Christians, Christians have been saying it the whole time. But they believed the Epicureans said there is, you know, the gods. They don't care about us if they are out there. We're here. We live. We die. So the most important thing is personal pleasure. Focus on your life and how you can be happy. They were hedonists basically, and they focused on personal pleasure because all you did, you were here and you died. So you might as well live life to the fullest. That's what the Epicureans thought. They also thought there was no life after death, by the way. They thought it was the end. They were, they were materialists. Just like a lot of atheists you'll run into or agnostics you'll run into in your life. You probably know more of them than you do Christians in your community. that will say after you die, your body goes into the ground, your spirit's gone. It was never really a thing before this that you came into existence, you'll die. And just like before you were born, that's how it'll be after you're dead, right? That's kind of how the Epicureans were. They were skeptics or what you can call agnostics. And I'm sure you know enough skeptics and agnostics in your life, in your world, wherever you work, wherever you live, you'll be able to find these Epicurean type of people. Then we had the Stoics. And I have more friends actually that are even kind of like the Stoics and the Epicureans. They believed in virtue and the highest good and ethics. They were very ethical people, but they said it had to be done through knowledge and you had to be smart enough to know how to do this. That, you know, they didn't believe in a God who could just change you and make you live according to the truth of the Spirit. They thought you had to learn this stuff. They also thought <clears throat> that we were all equals to God. Isn't it interesting? So the, fir- the first group of Beccurians said, it's all about yourself, pleasure. That's pride, right? Making things about yourself, that's pretty satanic, right? Then this is also satanic. Well, we're equal to God. That's exactly what Satan did, you know, when he got kicked out of heaven. He, he wanted to be like God. So you can see in these belief systems, they're very satanic at the root. No matter how intellectual, smart, and kind these people might be, their concepts are satanic meaning they oppose Christ's teaching completely. We are not equals to God, but they believe that because they believe God was in everything. God was the trees. God was the animals. God was the grass, and we are God. And trust me, I know uh, a lot of people, I, I, I got into some music, and I'd go to these you know, music concerts, and I'd talk to some of these people just to get their ideas, and I knew God had me in these strange places for reasons. So i talked talk to them about God, and they'd say, well, we're all God, and i pray to the moon because the moon's God, and i try not to laugh. I had to take them seriously because I'm trying to have a conversation, but I'm like, man, these people are pretty far out there. So these people still exist today who are pantheists that believe this. They believe God was in nature. And they believe that our soul was a fragment of the universal divine reason. So they thought that we are each a small percentage of God, even the living trees, even us. We are percentages of God, small little fractions of God, living in this type of way. And that when we died, we returned to the cosmic order. At death, we went back to the cosmic order, meaning that when we died, it just went right back to that whole source, that one light, that one source that is God, that everything is, that God is everything. And they did not believe in a personal afterlife either. So the other ones just thought, you know, Epicureans thought, you're dead and you're gone. You're dead and you're gone, that's it. These people thought, when you're dead, we get to go back and we're all God together, so we'll all collect into one being of God. So there's no personal afterlife, there's no afterlife for you, because you are God and we're all God. Another insane kind of thinking. These are the pantheists, the Stoics. And again, you're going to find people in the world that actually kind of think of this. But none of them believed in the created universe or a beginning either. So they don't believe in an afterlife and they don't believe in a created beginning because they think the universe is eternal. And they would have mocked you if you would have told them how to creation. So now we're going to look at what Paul does to these people. Because Paul, by the way, is highly educated. He's a very highly educated man. Studied under Gamaliel. He knew the scriptures very well, but he was also very well read so he had a good understanding of the Greek philosophies and what the Greeks believed. So this is what he says in verse 19. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. So it's interesting. They want to know this new teaching. They invite him to the Areopagus, also known as Mars Hill. You might have heard it called Mars Hill before. Basically, the Harvard Lecture Hall of Greece. Imagine if you were out there on the streets talking to somebody you went to boston and you're up there and god led you to boston and you're going to go preach the gospel and somebody said you know what this is new i never really heard this i want you to come into harvard i want you to give a lecture on this jesus guy right that's essentially what they were doing they invited him into their harvard lecture hall the mars hill where they had all the top philosophical discussions and what you can see about what was new because it says that all the athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new they wanted to hear it not because they believed it was true because it was a new philosophy. And that's what they love, they love novelty things. And you'll find out humans love novelty. We all do actually, you almost have to resist it sometimes. But we all love hearing new things and they became obsessed with it. But think about this, how many people are addicted to finding out what the latest news is? There's some people that wanna have the latest technology, they don't care if there's no difference from the iPhone 15 to the 14, they just want it because it's new and it's novel and it's the newest best thing, right? Same concept. Latest fashion, people want the latest dress, the latest clothes. Not because it even changes anything about your warmth, but because it's the newest and it's novel, right? Even rumors. The reason people love rumors is because it's new information, new, you know, new slander of people. They want to hear about this new stuff. And one of my favorites, I like to talk about new scientific theories. So I went to school at Penn State and I was around a lot of people who were in the sciences and a lot of them went on to work in the sciences and they all want to know about the newest scientific theories and what's going on and what we have discovered now about the universe that we didn't know before, right? So these people, again, this is nothing new. We see this today in our world. But these people were so obsessed that they just wanted to hear about these new philosophies and new teachings because they weren't grounded in true faith, right? Let's go to verses 22 through 33 and just kind of wrap up uh, the scriptures here. So now he's at Mars Hill at the Areopagus and it says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the... And the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the arts and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So let's break this down, uh, this final scripture here. So you can see he does not start with scripture. Now he's at the Areopagus. Again, he doesn't pull out the scrolls, doesn't pull out the Old Testament. He approached it from their worldview because they're unchurched people. They're unsynagogued people. They don't know scriptures. They don't know about the God of Israel. So he starts going to what they know. And it's funny because Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And this is an example, I think, of what he talked about in 1 Corinthians. He is becoming all things to all people. When he was talking to the Jews, he reasoned like a Jew. And now he's with the Greeks, he's going to talk like a Greek to them. Now, when he talks to them, he's not going to verify that their things are true, but he's going to use these common things to get their attention. He's not going to confirm and say everything you believe is true. He's actually doing the opposite. He's taking their beliefs and he's going to get them to go in a different direction based on their common grounds of what they believe he discusses this unknown God in their culture. You have to understand the Greeks were very accepting. If you were a new, if they took over you, they would Hellenize things. So if they, if they took over your your nation or whatever, you came from another place, he said, I have my own God of this. They said, cool, let's make a statue. What does it look like? Let's make a statue. Let's put a thing up there and figure it out. But they, they were so open to all these gods that they said, you know what guys, we might've missed a God. So just in case, let's put a thing up there for any God we miss. So maybe this un- maybe there's an unknown God and we might've missed him. So let's make a thing to him. So we don't know who he, who he or she is, but we're gonna make one in case we missed all the gods because there's a lot of them, right? So he's telling them, hey, this unknown God, you know, there is an unknown God and I'm gonna help you know him. So he's gonna tie this unknown God that he saw. He said, I saw this. I was walking through town. I saw this you know, scripture, this, this thing this, to the unknown God. And he's gonna tell them that he is knowable, which we know he is. And he's a personal God. He's not a God that lives in the distance, that doesn't affect your life, that you go back to in the end and, and you aren't yourself. No, he's going to tell them who the unknown God is. So he's, he's going to their idea, their concept, that he knew the Greeks believed there could be a God they don't know about. So he's going to take that angle and tell them there is a God you don't know about. Um, he goes on to say, you know, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. That kind of got rid of, that gets rid of racism, by the way. I love that line. It gets rid of racism. We all come from one man not from different men of different races. Because even the Athenians had a little racism in them. They thought they were a little bit smarter than everybody else. And they thought it might be because they're from Greece and they had a different background and they came from a different group of people than others came from. That's actually, I actually lo- love to tell people evolution is very racist. Uh, and that's where a lot of racism comes from because it says that you could come from different groups and certain people could be more evolved than other people. That's where the racism concept really took off uh, in our recent history. But the Athenians were very racist and thought, they thought they were better and smarter than other people. And Paul's trying to tell them, no, God created us all from one, from one man, Adam. That's where we all come from. And he, and he also t- hits on this too. You, God, has, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, he's starting to give God these attributes that he determines everything and God is in control, which he is, right? Because they thought everything was chance and fate. The concept of the fates, you know, there's even that one Christmas song people sing that says, if the fates allow. They don't understand that you're actually singing about Greek gods, the fates, and these, and these spirits that they thought determined, you know, might be deterministic or that things just happen and things random roll the dice chance and things all happen. So again, he's approaching their belief system and correcting it. Saying, I know you guys believe in you know, fate and chance, but the God, the unknown God you don't know about is actually controlling everything. Nothing gets by him. Nothing sneaks by him. Just like I said about when you know, when the Thessalonicans chased them out of Thessalonica and Berea, that wasn't by chance. That wasn't a roll of the dice. Those people didn't get away with anything. God allowed it. God's in control of everything, and Paul's here telling them that. And then he's going to go into more common ground. This is the part I really love. Verse 27 and through 29, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way around to find him, yet he's actually not far from each one of us, so he's personalizing God there. And look at this. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. Some of you might not know, <clears throat> that's Greek philosophy. That's a Greek concept and a Greek quote that was said to many around there. as was one of their philosophers and writers. And then he says, and even some of your poets have said. Now he's going to start using Greek poetry. Did you ever think you could preach to somebody with Greek poetry? P- Paul does it here. He says, for we are indeed his offspring. So what he did is he found out he knew the Greek culture. He was very well read. Again, did not believe what the Greek culture said <clears throat> and what all their stuff said. But he knew what they said and what they believed. And that's very important When you're going to talk to somebody about Christ, you need to have a common ground. If they've never been to a church before, don't start hitting them with Romans Road, because they're going to be like, what are you talking about? I need saved, right? What you should do is probably, it's always best to have a relationship with that person, because you know a little bit about them, what they're into. Are they into sports, music, fashion, culture? What are their belief systems? What's their worldview? It helps to know this, because then you can talk to them about Christ in this way, and you don't need to start out with the scriptures. Now, eventually... When you get them to believe, you want to take them, obviously, to the scripture and say, this is the source of truth. But you don't start with the Bible for people that don't read the Bible or know the Bible. He's using Greek poets to say, we are God's offspring. Your poetry said, we are indeed his offspring. We are God's offspring. So why should we think that, you know, he's gold or silver or stone like you guys think? Because they thought, remember, gold statues, silver statues, that the gods were, would be summoned to them and in them. And he's trying to tell them, if we're God's offspring, like you, even your poets say, why would he be in these things if we were born of him, right? So he's, again, talk, talking to their beliefs and correcting them. He's hitting their Greek culture, Greek beliefs, using their poetry and correcting them. So I thought about some real-world uh, tactics I use. I've, I've used uh, similar concepts. So I have a lot of friends that are into the sciences, especially when I was at Penn State, and they believe in a thing called the simulation theory. And the simulation theory is this concept that this is kind of like one big video game and that there's glitches in the matrix. You probably, if you're young enough, you know everybody here, I see some people smiling. You know what a glitch in the matrix is, right? They say, this is all matrix, very much like a video game, and there's glitches sometimes. The Mandela effect is a glitch in the matrix because it's all a simulation, right? So what I do to go to those people is I say, you guys say this is a simulation theory, then you say that we're a simulation. Now we are created, and this world is a creation, and there is something outside of this. So see, what I do is I take them right to their belief system. Because in a simulation theory, they believe there's, you know, whoever some person outside on a supercomputer who is controlling all of this. And I say there is somebody outside that's controlling this, but it's God. It's Yahweh, the God of Israel. And you can find some truth in some of these bad beliefs, right? You can find some truth. You might even approach them, maybe not in a bad theory, there's a thing called the Fibonacci sequence. I always love to point out to people. If you notice, everything in nature grows and spirals and it's because there's a mathematical code called the Fibonacci sequence. So you can take people who are really into math, computers, or into nature, and you say, look how nature grows. It grows according to this code. It grows according to creation. And it needs information. And you need information theory and information science. says you need an intelligent mind to have information in order. Otherwise, it's just noise. Scientists say this. So you can approach science from a gospel level, and you start to get them to engage. And once you get them to a level of certain belief, then you can take them <clears throat> to the scriptures but you could also maybe you're not into science but you have a lot of friends into music maybe you have a friend that's into the beatles uh, i'm sure if you guys have heard of the beatles before imagine just going to your friend saying you know what john lennon paul they all said all you need is love and they were right all you need is love and do you know who love is love is god god is love and that's really god is really the only thing you need because everything in this world will pass away see you can take any kind of segue where somebody comes from somebody believes and you can go to them whether if, if you're into video games you can again kind of use my concept of video games when i talk to people about video games who are really big gamers <clears throat> i love to talk to them about cheat codes I say what is a cheat code they say you know what a cheat code is there say well tell me what it is they say a cheat code is when i can put in a special code and the game usually runs this way but if i put this code in it alters and actually will change it miraculously i said cool i call that prayer prayer is my cheat code and i take them to that way because really Prayer is the cheat code. The world would work in its search- certain natural order if we didn't pray to God and God can intervene in miraculous ways. I know people, and I'm sure you've heard of people that were maybe cured by cancer. They had cancer. The doctors say it's in there. It's going to kill them. We all pray for them. Uh, I know a guy, Corey, his name is. He's actually local from Sunbury who has been completely clean. He went back to the doctors. They couldn't find the cancer. They actually can't find it. And they said, I don't know. <clears throat> don't know how to explain it. It's gone. We should probably finish you out on your medicine, you know, but your medicine, but It's gone. that's because of a miracle cheat code. So you can find all kinds of ways to take scriptural truth and find out and come from an angle that these people think in. Because they're not church. Those people, when you talk to them, are not church. And even some of you, I won't go into this too heavy, but even my alien topic, people get, some of you might have been here for my (laughs) crazy alien talk in July. And the reason I talk about aliens, not because I believe there's green Martians coming here, but I'm trying to get them to concept. There are beings, I call them angels, that, that can interfere with the world. They're not on other planets. But I believe in this, you know, and I believe in the rapture. Let me tell you about abductions, right? Let me tell you about what the Bible says about abductions. So you can even, you can go from all kinds. Of, when you find what somebody believes, just take it into to the scriptural truths, but you don't have to get taken to scripture right away. You start telling them about the truth. But remember, you need to, what he always ne- never leaves out here is that Christ was, was killed, he suffered, he died, and he was resurrected, brought back from the dead. So you can't leave out certain things, right? And if people don't believe in the virgin birth of the resurrection, they don't believe the true gospel is what the, the Bible says. Uh, and then we look at further, verses 30 and 31. You can see he starts to say, the time of ignorance is over. I love this. <clears throat> it's actually a scary thought for the Athenians. They might have understood this. He said, all right, you guys were ignorant before, and God's going to forgive you. You guys were silly and stupid with your idols. You probably didn't call them stupid, because you can even notice, <clears throat> he doesn't even talk down to them. He didn't say, you and your foolish ideas of these, uh, which sometimes we can do. I've done that in the past. Like I can't believe you're so stupid to think you know, that the moon is a God or whatever. It doesn't go well. It doesn't go well when you approach it like that. We have to do everything in gentleness, season our words with salt to unbelievers, Colossians says. So you can even see here, he's correcting them, but he's not beating them over the head. He's saying, Listen, God's going to forgive you of this ignorance. You guys didn't know he was your unknown God. He's going to forgive you, but now is the time to repentance. Now you know. Once you know, you can't not know. And then you're held accountable. <clears throat> so he says, The time of ignorance is over, Athenians. You can either accept. Or reject now. That's your only option. You can't do the unknown thing anymore. You have to either accept the unknown your unknown God or reject him. And he calls them to repentance. So you can see when you talk to your non-believing friends, tell them their time of ignorance is over. You might not have known about the real story of go- the gospel of Christ, but now you do, and now you can repent from your sins and turn to him. Because he goes on, he will judge the world. So he starts talking on the judgment now to these people. Why would I need to repent? Well, because there's going to be a judgment. And if you don't repent, you will be judged for what you did not repent of, right? Your sins. And when you repent and turn to Christ, you you have repented and you are forgiven of your sins. So he's telling them, we're all gonna be judged, and that is true. Believers and non-believers, we will all be judged. Um, But you gotta turn and repent, right? And then he says, God, he he proved them that, that Jesus was God and Jesus was the Messiah because of the resurrection. He keeps using that resurrection. And again, that's because... They did not believe in a resurrection. This was complete foolishness to them. And you'll see you see later that they, com- they thought it was completely foolish, the resurrection. Remember, some of them thought you were dead in the ground, you disappear. Other ones thought you were dead and you went back to the grand cosmos because you were a fraction of God. So this getting back up in a body is absolutely insane to these people. But he's saying, it, it, everywhere he goes, there's a resurrection. And that's actually why we know, because Jesus already got back from the dead. That was pretty miraculous, right? And then the last few verses... And this is one of my favorite things to focus on here. So now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among those whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So I love this, look at this. So right out the gate, philosophers mocked the resurrection. Oh, that's completely absurd. Nobody can get back from the dead. We all know that, right? Epicureans, right? Stokes, you know, nobody can come back from the dead. So they all agree. So they they foolishly mock him. They reject Paul. And I consider Paul way better evangelist than I am. And he got rejected. Then we see, you know, some says, we will hear you again about this. Some said, hmm, I'll listen to another sermon of yours. I'm not so convinced yet, Paul. But I'm interested in what I'm hearing. I'll, I'll give you a chance. I'd like to hear more about this. Can you expand more? And then the final one, some believed. Dionysus, look at It doesn't say, I love that it doesn't say Dionysus and Damaris. It says, Dionysus the Areopagite. So imagine, remember, the Areopagus, the Mars Hill, was their Harvard. Imagine if you went and you got invited from the streets of Boston into Harvard. You went and gave a speech and you got mocked. And these people say, I do they think about it. But then one of the Harvard professors was like, I accept Christ. That was true. I accept, I repent for my sins. What do I do now to be a believer? That's pretty amazing that Dionysus, who is from this wise place, like I said, our Harvard professor... Imagine convincing at Harvard, a Harvard professor, that Christ was the king and the savior of the world. That's what Paul did. But you'll notice, what did Paul do? He got three different reactions. Some said, no, you're you're completely absurd. Some said, maybe, I'll think about it. And some said, yes, right? So you have to understand, when you preach the gospel, when you preach the message of Christ, it's not on you to convince people. Jesus did not say, go to the world and convince them that I am, Jesus, that I am the Messiah. He did not say that. Although he'd love for them to believe. He didn't say, go and convince people. He says, go and tell them. Which I think is related. You know, when Jesus says, you know, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I think a lot of it is what he's talking about here is really to do what you need to do to get the gospel, it's actually no pressure on you. Other than you got to take some slaps, you know, hypothetical slaps in the face and get mocked. If you don't mind getting mocked, that's, all, that's the hardest thing for you is getting mocked. But you don't have to convince them that's not your job. The Holy Spirit will do that work. And when I was younger, that was one of my problems. I would always, and I think most people when they're believers at first, when they start getting excited, they want to convince people. So I think, well, maybe if I say it differently, or maybe if I do this and I start trying to figure out what I did wrong, why they don't believe. The Bible says it has nothing to do with me. I just have to tell them and God will change their hearts. The Holy Spirit will do the work. Paul was the greatest, one of the greatest evangelists, maybe the greatest ever that we see in the New Testament. He got mocked and rejected, right? So I think this is a very important piece, these, just these, pa- these end uh, scriptures here of Acts 17. Remember, when you go and share the gospel, there's only three reactions, so I just say brace for it. And I hope you get the good one, but brace for it. Understand when you tell somebody the gospel, they could mock you. They could say, I want to hear more, or they could say, yes, I believe. So always be prepared for all three, because those are the only three reactions you will ever get by preaching the gospel. So let's just recap Acts 17. We're going to recap here before we close. So, number the, one of the points I want to make, know your audience. When we are evangelizing, remember, this is all about evangelism, going out and sharing the gospel of Christ to a world that doesn't believe the unreached. We want to reach the unreached. You need to know your audience. What's their belief in ideology? Is the person you're going to talk to a uh, practicing Jew that goes to the synagogue in Sunbury? Go to the Old Testament. If you're not good at that yet, go, go back to the Old Testament, find some prophecies, start with Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, and figure out how you could preach the gospel to a Jew. And then, if they're not a Jew... What is their ideology? Figure out, you know, kind of try to figure out what do they believe in. You can maybe even straight up ask them, what's your worldview? What do you believe happens? And get an idea of it. And then approach it from that standpoint. If your friend's really into music, approach them maybe on that level, like I said. If they're into science, you can approach them on that level. Just like Paul approached them with their Greek poetry and their Greek literature. But make sure to find that common ground before you take them right to the scripture. We do want to get them to the scripture, but you have to meet them on common ground like Paul did, making sure uh, to correct their wrongs. Now, you all have hobbies and jobs and live in neighborhoods. We don't all live in the same neighborhoods and have the same jobs, have the same hobbies. And I believe God gives us different hobbies and passions in our heart. How many of us, we can't explain why we like the things we do. We're just kind of, we say we're wired like that. Some people say, I'm wired to just want to play sports. Or I'm just really wired to work with my hands on wood, do wooden cutting. I don't know what it is, but I'm just obsessed with it. I just love doing it. I believe God planted all of our hobbies in our hearts. I believe the job you have, God wasn't, because remember, God controls all things. He's designed for you, whether you, you, know, you work a job or have your business or wherever you're at, he's designed for that to be because he's giving you your Areopagus. He's giving us our Mars Hill. I guarantee you'll find, just like in the marketplace, unbelievers, when you do hobbies, I'm a, I like to play the drums, I'm a music guy. I guarantee you, I'm one of the few rare Christians when I go to a show and talk to these people. So I have to know that I'm there for a reason to talk to these people about God and I got to make the most of it. So whatever you do in hobbies, whatever you do at your job, wherever you live and you find somebody that doesn't believe, understand that God gave you that as your Mars Hill, as your marketplace and be prepared to preach the gospel. Always have that ready to be able to share with them. Maybe it's a little bit here, a little bit there, but make sure that you're sharing the gospel because that's really our one job. And remember... You're only going to get three responses. You're going to get rejected. They're going to delay in accepting it, or they're going to believe. But remember to relax and that the Holy Spirit really has the end outcome. So don't try to convince them and try to figure out what crafty word you can say. Just preach to them. Share them the truth of Christ and the gospel message. I'm going to leave before we have uh, our singers come up for the last song. I just want to read uh, Matthew 28, the ending here, verses 19 and 20, when Jesus Christ said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So please make sure we're following the Great Commission and we're sharing the message of Christ.